Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. And today we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 6. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, please turn or tap your way to Nehemiah chapter 6. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, please don't panic. We'll have those words on the screen. We'd love to give you a Bible on your way out because this stuff we're saying is the word of God. It's the word of life. And we want you to be in it. We want you to be reading it regularly. And if you can follow along with what we are uh, preaching on, it helps you to see, is what they're saying connected with what the Bible says? I don't know how much you know about Nehemiah, but today we are actually finishing a series on this first part of Nehemiah of the, the story of God using Nehemiah to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. For the glory of God and the good of the kingdom. We've been connecting that with how believers today have a lot in common with Nehemiah. We are actually given his mission. Now, I don't know if you've been called to go and physically build a wall around a city in the name of the Lord. Probably not. We call this thing swords and shovels because the iconic picture from the book is the people of Judah building the wall while at the same time armed, ready for physical combat with people who are going to attack them to stop them from building the wall. Now that seems to have less of a parallel with ministry at Hope Church. I don't know what your experience was like getting in the building this morning. Probably didn't involve a sword. I know Ethan had a sword, but in general, it wasn't sharp, it was wood. There's, in general, you don't have to do that. We have, as leadership, never priced out swords and shovels for everybody. We purchase shovels for like service projects, but in general, your experience of kingdom building doesn't really match too well with what Nehemiah is doing until you start to see what it does have in common. What it does have in common is the same God. Nehemiah's God is the same God, God over all, and he's our God today. Nehemiah's calling was to go about a specific task because of the glory of God and for the good of God's people. You and I, as God's church, are called to do things for the glory of God and the good of God's people. We are to be motivated in the same way. We are to achieve the same ends, even if it goes through different specific tasks. So there's a lot to learn from Nehemiah, and I think we've learned a lot from these, uh, these chapters in this story. Today, though, I kind of want to land the plane by looking at some of the fringe benefits of being on mission with God. I say fringe because they're not what Nehemiah sought He sought to build a wall, he built a wall. He sought to bring God's name glory, he brought God's name glory. But as he went on that mission, God also built into him things that were good. Things that I want you to see and I want you to be motivated by. Motivated to seek them, but also motivated to seek God's mission, knowing that he will build these same things in you. The two things I want you to see today are faith and humility. If you don't immediately salivate over the idea of growing in your faith and growing in your humility, you would prefer me to preach on something that would grow like your bottom line. Well, let me make a case for why you should want those things. Why God, building those into Nehemiah, allowed him to survive some attacks that came his way, but also why they're going to lead you into wisdom itself. 
There's a guy named John Calvin. He was one of the um, reformers, part of the Great Reformation that took place several hundred years ago. But this guy, John Calvin, was a super brilliant guy, and he was a systematizer. He was taking all the theology that was being written and understood in those days, and he was just cataloging it well into his most famous work, which is called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. And this giant sort of compendium opens with this sentence. Our wisdom, and so far as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. Faith and humility. God taught Nehemiah wisdom, and I want you to see that from the attacks, more attacks that come at Nehemiah as he goes about this work, this time attacks personally. So let's read it. Nehemiah chapter 6, starting verse 1 says, Now, when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, I mean, I hadn't put the doors up in the gates yet, but the wall was finished, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Hekaphirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work. I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they did the same thing. They sent to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner. And in the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me, this time with an open letter in his hand, meaning that instead of taking a message straight to Nehemiah, the servant came in and was reading aloud this accusation, this letter. And in it, in the letter, was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you, Nehemiah, wish to become king in Jerusalem, uh, wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So come now and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, no such things have been, have you, as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. There's an attack on the work. Nehemiah is helping to build the walls around the city of Judah. Israel, what was ancient Israel, was a sovereign nation. It was his own country. But since, in the time of Nehemiah, it is a conquered nation. It is a nation that has rulers over it. And at the time of Nehemiah, the nation that is over Israel is called the nation of Medes and the Persians. Nehemiah is actually an officer of the court of that king. And so when it's talking about the king who's hearing these reports, it's talking about Artaxerxes, the king in the Persian empire over Judah. And the reason that this was kind of a pretty intense accusation is if Judah begins to rebel then the whole force and might of the army of the Medes and the Persians is going to storm down and crush that city and wipe out that rebellion. So this is actually a pretty intense accusation. If these rumors were going about and if those rumors made their way into the court of the king, it might mean the end of this new sort of fledgling beginning on a new Jerusalem. 
It would certainly mean the end of the walls. It would probably mean the end of the rebuilt temple. And the reason they did it as an open letter is because those under Nehemiah's leadership, they wanted to hear and begin to rebel against Nehemiah. But Nehemiah, somehow, he sees through it, he answers boldly, and the work continues. How did he jump through that accusation? Well, he did. Uh, what, he, he jumped through that accusation. He was able to survive through what I said first, which is faith. There's a couple of things Nehemiah knew and that he remembered. One, he knew that he hadn't done anything wrong. He knew that Sanballat was inventing these things out of his own mind. He knew that they weren't true. Two, he knew the king. You know, the big bad sort of implication of all these rumors is that the king of the, Medi- of the Medes and the Persians is going to hear about it and come and bring this conquering army. Well, Nehemiah knows the king, the friends. He knows that if somehow these rumors that are just rumors make it to the king's court, the king won't believe them because he knows Nehemiah. Three, he knew why Sanballat was doing what he's doing. He just wanted them to stop building the wall. He wanted the work of God to cease. And so Nehemiah had faith in what he knew to be true. That's what we mean, by the way, when we say faith. I think some people look into religious people or look into communities of faith, and they think what they mean by faith is trusting in something that's not true. And we all know there's no God, but the people who still want to kid themselves have faith in something that we all know isn't true. Well, no, we don't think that. What we mean when we say faith is coming to know that something's true and then just holding on to that fact. When we say faith, we mean that we have come to know and to believe that Jesus is the Christ and that he's raised from the grave. We believe those things as true. You may believe it is true because you trust the person who told you. You may believe it is true because you've done your historical research. You may believe it is true because it's the answer to all of humanity's questions. But whatever the reason you believe, you believe for a reason that it is, in fact, true. Faith comes in when you hold that truth to be true. Despite attack, despite your own sort of desire sometimes that it not be true, you, by faith, believe that it's true. You hold that thing that you know to be true, to be true. That's what Nehemiah did. Now, what I want to do is take Nehemiah's situation and expand it out a little bit to ourselves as we're going about the work of God because Nehemiah has got accusations coming against him from people that are around him, and yet he trusts in the king. And in this case, he's talking about Artaxerxes. You and I, though, as we go about the kingdom work that God calls us to, are going to suffer accusations... And those accusations against us are towards our king, who is Jesus. How are we going to get through them? See, the Bible talks about a serpent, the one we call the devil or Satan. And that word Satan means accuser. The Bible says in the beginning, in Genesis, when the serpent deceives the woman and she sins and her husband with her. God curses the serpent. He says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between 
your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We talk about that as the first picture of the gospel and praise God for it. But look at what it's also saying. It's also saying that that enemy has people who do his will. That there are actively accusers working against the work of God. Jesus knew it. It says in John 8 that the Son of God himself is going about the work that God has called him to. (laughs) Who's more blameless than Jesus? As Jesus is walking around, he's got these encounters with these Pharisees that are happening time and time again. And at this point in John 8, Jesus just tells them who they are. He says, if God was your father, then you would love me, for I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but God sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. You see what it's saying? It's saying that there is an enemy and that there are people all around you, and God forbid, but probably people in this room who do his work. They speak with his tongue. They accuse the people of God to slow down the work of God. Now, how do we respond against it? Yeah, Nehemiah knew Artaxerxes. How do we respond when God is getting these accusations against us? Well, I want to take you through just what the Scripture says about how we get through this. Look at the guy Job. Job was a guy who God says in Job chapter 1, verse 8, and the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth. He is a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. That's not Job talking about Job. That's not Job's PR guy talking about Job. It's not his wife or his lawyer. That's God talking about Job with these superlatives. That Job is upright. And famously, Satan then responds. Satan accuses even Job. And how does he do it? He takes Job's righteousness and flips it on its head and accuses Job of not having any love towards God, that he only does these things because God blesses him so much. Now, if the enemy can accuse Job before God, what's he going to say about you? When the enemy stands before the Lord of glory and accuses you, he might have more to work with than he did with Job. Think about it carefully and answer these questions. Are you a liar? Do you shade the truth? Do you make it look a little different with the way you say or shade or emoticon? What are those called? Emoji? The way you emoji? The shades of delicate difference between the crying emoji laugher and the regular emoji laugher or the one with just a little dot for a mouth? Are you a liar? Are you somebody who is proud and so you're always anxious? In your head, you're the king of the world, and so when things aren't going well, you just are rife with fear and anxiety. God said, fear not. Are you somebody who disobeys God by being proud and you're constantly angry? 
Because all these people around you aren't doing what they should be doing. And the reason that you're angry is because you're offended that they would break things down in this beautiful world that you've created for your glory. Are you somebody who is sexually immoral? Is lust a regular part of your life? Are you somebody that is so taken by the thousand small pleasures our world offers that you don't really care much about other people or the kingdom of God? I think that's happening constantly. Is that you? When the enemy stands before God and it's your case, does he have something to say? I I don't think that it's hard for the enemy to accuse us. He's got a lot to work with. So what the heck are we supposed to do in order to stand before a holy God? Around the same time that Nehemiah was writing, there was a prophet that was writing named Zechariah. And it's one of the minor prophets, so I don't know how many people like get into this stuff. It's towards the end of the Old Testament, and it's got a lot of visions in it, but it's absolutely beautiful. And in chapter 3 of Zechariah, he talks about a vision where the high priest, the one who is the, a member of the people of Israel who is standing before God, it says in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1, then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing on his right hand to accuse him. Okay, here's our picture. Verse 3 says, Now, Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. The high priest was supposed to stand before God and be clean. Clean and unclean. Read the Old Testament, it's constantly a theme. Because God is not only clean, He's holy. He's the holy God, and nothing that is sinful or unclean will ever be able to stand before him without the wrath of God breaking it. So how is Joshua, the high priest of all the people, supposed to stand before a holy God in filthy garments? What's the accuser going to have to say in order to incriminate Joshua? It's plain for all to see. What does the Lord do? (laughs) And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity, that's a fancy word for your sin, your disobedience of God, your filth. I've taken your filth away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Vestments is word for clothes. What's being said here? What's being said is the gospel that's been preached from page one all the way through Scripture. That God knows what the enemy is saying about you, and He also knows that it's true. He knows that if He doesn't do something about it, you are, you will be separated from Him forever, crushed by His wrath. This story is telling you, though, that God, in the great love that He has for you, takes off your iniquity, and he puts on clean garments. How does he do that? This is where we get the gospel. Palm Sunday, we talk about Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a colt. That prophecy about that actually is in Zechariah. Just another reason to go read Zechariah. Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on this donkey, humbly. The Lord of glory entering into his kingdom. And what do we do? At the end of that week, on Friday, he's dragged back out of that city, scourged with thorns in his head, to be nailed onto a cross. 
They are to be killed with our sin, enduring the wrath of God, that breaking for our sin, so that God can put the clean vestments of Christ, that one high priest who really was clean, onto you and me. He took off our filth and put it on Christ. He took off Christ's righteousness and put it on us. Thanks be to God. The resurrection, not only Jesus dying, but Jesus rising, is the point where everything breaks. Because one who is truly righteous has now suffered for sin. So those who are truly sinful can now be given righteousness. You can have that holy and pure clothing put on you so that you do stand before the king and he says, clean, innocent. Are you? Of course not. But in Christ, you can be declared innocent. He's saying what Spurgeon has said in a different way. This guy, Charles Spurgeon, he put this really pretty picture together. And it's really helpful for us who live in Utah. He says, the heart of Christ became like a reservoir in the midst of the mountains. You ever go in the mountains and see the reservoirs? And you're standing in sort of a bowl and you're looking up at all the peaks around you and you see the snow up there and you know the snow melt is what fills this reservoir. He said that the heart of Christ became like a reservoir in the midst of the mountains and all the tributary streams of our sin, every drop of the sins of his people run down and are gathered into one vast lake, deep as hell and shoreless as eternity. All these meet, as it were, in Christ's heart, and he endured them all. That's the gospel. That's, that's the whole thing. We talk about Nehemiah growing in faith, and he's able to endure these accusations because of what he believes. Do you believe? Nehemiah knew that if these accusations ever made it to the king, that the king would dismiss it outright because the king knew Nehemiah. Do you know the king? Do you really know him? Does he know your name? Does he have your name carved into his palms? Do you know the Lord? Listen, if you're new, you've been visiting, okay, take your time. We want you to understand these things. And I understand that as I'm putting all this together, I'm kind of assuming that you're understanding different pieces of it as I try to assemble it into this one big, beautiful picture. Take your time. Make sure you understand what we're saying. But if you understand it, if you understand that God, holy God, has really made a way to forgive you and bring you into his court, if you really do believe that, have you received it? Have you put your faith into that truth? Have you given your life to that Lord? Don't let today pass without doing it. Ask questions of the person that you know and love that are here in this room. Ask me. Oh my gosh, let me talk to you. I know I'm screaming and making babies sad, but I, if in like one-on-one -on -one conversation, I'm generally pretty nice. Let me talk to you and answer questions about it. You have to know, you have to see, you have to believe. And then the faith that God gives you in that gospel allows you to put out the fiery darts of the enemy, the accusations of the evil one. It says in Ephesians that God gives us this armor. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. 
Take on your head the helmet of salvation. Remember what's true about what Christ has done to make a way of salvation for you. In the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, experiencing God. It keeps beating this drum over and over again. Relationship. Do you know Him? He wants to know you. The knowing is what's going to facilitate all the doing. Do you know him? Do you know him? The second test, which necessarily we're going to go through a little quicker, is about humility. Here's what I mean by that. When that failed, that attempt by Sanballat failed, they did something totally different. As Nehemiah says in verse 10, his first person pronouns are Nehemiah. Now when I, Nehemiah, went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehedabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you, and they are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and I saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in a way that is sin, uh, act in this way in sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess Noadiah. And the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Hurry, Nehemiah, they're after you. Listen, you're so important, they're going to try and kill you. Why don't we hide you? Hmm, where can we hide someone as wonderful as you? Why don't we put you in the actual temple? They won't go in there. No one's allowed in there but the Levites. Let's put you in the temple. How does he respond? Danger. Sop to his vanity. Here we go, Nehemiah, please. This is the only thing we can do. It's coming from a prophet. It's not Sanballat and Tobiah out in the field hoping that he'll somehow stop building this wall they hate. It's a guy inside Jerusalem. How does Nehemiah have the wisdom to fight against that attack? Well, he has humility. He says, should such a man as I, in the first place, he said, so such a man as I run, he had his eyes on his job. He was the governor of that area. What, he's supposed to run away from his duty, from what he's supposed to be doing for these people because somebody has made some sort of accusations, made some sort of a threat against him? Like he has the right to look after himself when he has been given the charge of governor of these people to work for these people. Then he has the humility to say about himself truly that he's not allowed in the temple. Should such a man as I go into the temple, God himself will smite me. I know that seems to go against what we said to this point about being able to stand before God, but understand where we are in the New and Old Testament. In the Old Testament, before the time of Christ, you weren't allowed to go in the temple unless you were that one high priest. And then only one time a year at that Yom Kippur day. He had the humility to know who he was, and that humility allowed him to skip and dance through this accusation, though it came from one of the prophets in Jerusalem. 
Knowing that it was wrong and knowing that he could not do that because of humility, he then also understood that this was no prophet and this was no prophecy. That this guy had slaved himself out. He had taken a little money and tried to stop the work of God. We've got to have humility. We've got to have a right understanding of ourselves so that we have a willingness to lay down our life for the other people that we're being called to serve. So that we have the understanding of really who we are before God and God becomes greater and greater and we become more normal-sized. That's what pride does. Pride makes you unbelievably big in your own eyes and in the importance of your own heart. And it makes the Lord sort of fade. Maybe you don't shrink him. You do shrink him. But, but in your head, you just sort of push him away further. Well, it's kind of the same thing. Humility takes God and says, God is God, and I am not. John the Baptist, he must increase. I must decrease. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself rightly. The big saying is not thinking less of yourself, thinking of yourself less. Well, that'll happen if you think of yourself rightly. You're just one sort of variable in this long equation. How do you get that humility? Well, you remember what we talked about this whole time. You remember the cross. You remember what that says about who you are and about who God is and about your sin, but also about God's love of you. <laughs> it makes God big and it makes you normal-sized. The other thing you do is you hang out with God's people because God's people are really going to humble you. I am humbled constantly by trying to help people. I realize how much of it is coming from pride. Or I realize how absolutely inadequate my own wisdom and skill set is for fixing the problem I'm called to try and fix. Praying constantly with the proverb writer that says, I'm too stupid to be a man. It's just this accusation like, Lord, get me out of here. I'm, I, make me a dog or something. Maybe I'll be okay as a dog because I'm a terrible man. I feel that. You humble me. <laughs> That's what the Bible says that the body of Christ does. It says in Romans 12, it's talking about how we enjoy, how we live with each other. It says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. You're excited about what's happening for other people. You're seeing their life and how your life is just one normal part. You're weeping with those who weep. You're seeing their struggles and you're feeling with them rather than this absolute obsession with yourself. You live in harmony with one another. How hard is that? Oh, it's painfully difficult unless you start to get a little bit smaller in your own eyes. How? You don't be haughty. You don't be proud, but you associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight, but you repay no one evil for evil. You give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, <laughs> and it doesn't, but so far as it depends on you, you live peaceably with all. And the people of God will help to humble you. Recently, I was putting on a hat, and I was sad about it, because i got like 10 hats. I keep buying them, thinking one's going to fit. But they don't fit because my head's weird. I don't know why. It's kind of large, but I think it's also kind of pointy. So if I wear a hat, I get a headache right there. It's just in one very specific spot. And I was bemoaning the fact to my wife. I was telling her, I can't wear hats. i got a weird head. I've got a giant weird head. She goes, no, you don't have a weird head. And I was like, I do. I have a weird head. And she said, I like your weird head. 
And I said, oh, you just like what's inside it. You don't understand. The form of my head is broken and gross. And she went, well, <laughs> at least you're so tall. People can't see it real well. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Did I want her to tell me it's not weird? It is weird. <laughs> what did she say instead? Eh, it's not that big of a deal that it's weird. And she's right. Humility. Rub shoulders with his people and see as the Holy Spirit ministers to you, making you who you are and helping you to see God as he is. Faith and humility. I pray, and I'm about to, that you would seek these things and seek them by going about the work that God's called you to in the way that he's called you to and watch as his Holy Spirit develops in you just this stuff that is more precious than gold and silver. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would build your church into a people of humility and faith. And I know, Lord, that becoming humble is often a very painful experience. And so I pray that you would give us comfort while you give us that, that difficult and painful gift. Lord, it's going to feel surgical. It's going to feel like rehabilitation. And yet, Father, on the other side of it, we become a people who are able that much more to be obedient, to see through the schemes of the enemy, Father. Lord, we become a people who are that much more able to be joyful in our sorrow because our eyes are on the King who has made all things well. Lord, teach us not to fear, but to hide in the shadow of your wing. We love you, sir. Please do this so that we become a people who work hard to build your kingdom for your glory. In your holy name we pray. Amen.